Well, let's take our Bibles tonight and open them to John chapter 11. We have, of course, been studying this chapter for some time, and we are really reaching the climax of this last miracle of Jesus as it's recorded in the Gospel of John. Since we have been studying the Gospel of John, we've we've actually come across six other miracles that Jesus has done. All of them are important. And that, I think, out of all of them, this one really is the, the straw, if you will, that breaks the camel's back as to the religious leader's desire to rid themselves of Jesus Christ, to get rid of the irritation that he is to them because he continues to confront them with their belief that he is not the Messiah. Their willful disbelief has really come to its full development here in John chapter 11. And so it's important that when we read and study the miracles in the Gospel of John, or in any gospel for that matter, that we do not forget that these are, in fact, physical happenings. What do I mean by that? I simply mean that they are uh, actual events that have actually taken place in the physical world, and they have meaning in a physical sense. Um, And yet, at the same time, even though they are physical realities, They have a spiritual uh, reality as well, a spiritual meaning that, and those spiritual meanings are essential if we are to understand Jesus Christ and salvation. John, in fact, never mentions them without that idea in mind. If we go all the way back to John chapter 2, we see the first miracle. Jesus turns water into wine. That was a physical event. Actual water being turned into actual wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And yet at the same time, John includes it in the gospel because it also teaches that there is no joy to be found in the world except the joy that Christ can bring. Of course, in the Jewish tradition, when it came to weddings, their joy was ended when the celebration ended. And the celebration ended when there was no more wine. It doesn't mean that they were wine-bibbers or they were lushes when it came to that. It just simply meant that that's how they were celebrating and celebrating a a moment in life that was so important. And Christ takes what was mundane in many ways and turns it into what is exhilarating. Everything else in comparison to what he brings to life fails. And inevitably, there's no joy at all without Jesus Christ. So in John chapter 2, that's really the idea behind what John is saying it's a real miracle. There's a wedding in Cana, and Jesus actually turns water into wine in the physical sense, but it teaches us a spiritual reality about what Jesus Christ brings. The second miracle was heard that we heard was the physical miracle of Jesus healing the royal official in John chapter 4 when Jesus heals this uh, 
son of a royal official uh, in the area of Galilee. It was a physical miracle. The son was actually sick, and Jesus Christ showed that he had power over physical sickness. No one can truly heal sickness physically without the intervention of God, even us today. We, we don't get healed if God isn't really intervening in some kind of way. And yet, in the spiritual realm, in that miracle, we see that Christ has the power, the one who has power over sickness, uh, the one who has power over those things that inflict so much pain to mankind, has power over that, that very reality that inflicts mankind in every way, and that is sin. The soul of every human being is sick with sin, and Christ is the only cure. And so we see that spiritual reality in John chapter 4 in the miracle where Jesus heals this nobleman's son. And in chapter 5, there's another physical miracle that happens. And Jesus physically heals a man who has been lame for 38 years. In a moment's time, totally helpless guy sitting around the pool at Bethsaida gets to his feet, physically walks away, completely healed. The healing is physical. The man's legs begin to work according to the prompting of the brain impulses that his brain sends to his legs that have not worked for over 38 years. But spiritual implication is the same for all of us. We are helpless and paralyzed. Why? Because of sin. Without hope. We have no hope of getting well on our own, trying to help ourselves to get up and walk, and it's Christ that must make us well. He must heal us. Or we remain just as that man, helpless in life. And so we see that even though it's a physical miracle, you see that there's a spiritual reality. The fourth miracle... Jesus physically feeding over 5,000 people in John chapter 6. And although the people actually eat and they're filled physically, their hunger pains are gone, the spiritual implication is that Christ is the bread of life. We know that because the people even come to him the next day. And he says, don't seek for those things that are temporal. He's the only one that can feed and nourish the soul. Man-made works never satisfy Pursuing what is temporal, pursuing the physical bread of this life alone never satisfies a hungry soul. And so that's the fourth miracle that Jesus does. And then, of course, in verse 15 of that same chapter, Jesus walks on the water. And he shows us that he has the power over nature, not just sickness, not just healing sickness and healing legs that will not work, but he has the power over nature itself. No need to fear. When Christ is with us, we're always safe. And that's the same in the spiritual realm. When we're enveloped in the arms of the creator of the world, who is there to hurt us? If God is for us, who could be against us, Paul says, so fear not. In fact, Jesus commands us, as he did his disciples in the boat that day, stop fearing, I am with you very creator of the earth, the one who's created these very things that you are afraid of, is with you. Do not, he says in verse 20, be afraid. And of course, we move along in John's Gospel and we come to chapter 9, and probably my favorite of all the miracles, 
Jesus performs the sixth miracle, as John records it at least for us, and it's the restoration of this man's eyes where he was born blind. He was blind from birth. Christ gives him actually physical new eyes, perfect vision in the realm of the physical life. And yet we remember that, I told us, this blind man really is a representative of all of us, a picture of all of us before Christ ever heals us from our spiritual blindness. Unless God reaches down to us, gives us new spiritual eyes, we'll never be able to see. We are sinners. We are spiritually blind. We walk in perpetual darkness. We need Christ alone to give us new spiritual eyes. So each of these miracles is a real physical miracle. The supernatural invading the natural. That's really what a miracle is. Supernatural invading the natural. And yet John records them for an explicit purpose. Uh, a, A purpose of showing us implications in the spiritual realm. In fact, John says, we've touched on this over and over again in chapter 20, I wrote these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life in His name. So much more could have been included Other things could have been said, and much more could have been shown to us, but what we do have is sufficient by God's design for us to understand who Jesus Christ is, that He is God in the flesh, and that there is salvation in no one else. The physical miracle is to point us to the spiritual reality. That's the same principle that is true in this miracle that we have tonight. It's the last miracle in John chapter 11. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. It is literal. It is physical. A man, dead and decaying, brought back to life with a word from God. Part of the proof that it actually happened in John chapter 11 is that the spiritual leaders of the day want to immediately get rid of Jesus Christ. They want to kill him. Had the resurrection not happened, they would not have responded in that way. But in addition to the account of this being a physical miracle in the reality that Lazarus actually is raised from the dead, there is a parallel principle of what takes place in the spiritual realm. When a man or a woman who is dead in sin is brought to spiritual life by the same Jesus, that's what we have here in this text tonight. We have the physical miracle and we have the spiritual implication by way of the spiritual side. And I just want to read for us the end of this accounting in John chapter 11, beginning in verse 38, and just read down to the verse 46, because after verse 46, the conspiracy builds to just get rid of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ enters into the final week of his life. Beginning in verse 38, Jesus, therefore, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now, we remember what has happened before. 
Jesus is now at the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was laying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you, If you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. And Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me, and I know that you heard me, or I, and I knew that you heard me always, but because of the people standing around, I said it, that they may believe that you did send me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, And his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many, therefore, of the Jews who had come to Mary and beheld what what he had done, believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. And when Jesus Christ raised Lazarus from the dead, He proved beyond a shadow of any doubt that he is, in fact, God. That is truly the focus of this entire chapter. Jesus Christ is God, and Christ verifies his claim to be God to the two groups who were there at the time. Jesus not only wants his disciples to witness his power so their faith is strengthened, They had been following him for some time now. He's about to be in his final week of life on this earth. They have been with him nearly three years to the total now. And they want he wants their faith to be strengthened to the place where it will not falter because he's going to be going soon. But he also wants the other Jewish people, those who are around, those who are there mourning with Martha and Mary, who are there to witness. He wants them to witness his power so they also might believe that he's the Messiah. This, in fact, is why John has put it here for us, that we, too, might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus' claim, by the way, in verse 25, is proven with undeniable clarity when he says, Lazarus, come forth. When he says in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. That is proven when he says in verse 43, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus comes forth. Verse 45 tells us that as a result, many believed. Many believed. So let's let's look at this text Specifically, Let's just kind of take it apart a little bit and draw some conclusions for ourselves. We remember that Jesus is righteously angry on one hand and righteously empathetic on the other hand. You remember what it said before, verse 33, when Jesus saw they were weeping, the Jews came with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit. Remember I said that was a, a, a disgust at the reality and the effects of sinfulness over 
what had taken place. He's moved in spirit and was troubled. That's empathy. He's saddened by what he sees. The effects of sin upon the earth. And so he is righteously angry and he is righteously empathetic. The effects of sin and death are all around. And he knows it. He sees the devastation that it has upon mankind as they interact with it. And so Jesus goes to where mankind is entombed. He goes to where Lazarus is. Now, physically speaking, from a physical standpoint, Lazarus is in the tomb physically and the stone is lying over the entrance. That's what the text tells us. He's in a cave. There's a stone lying against it, verse 38. He could not escape even if he were alive. That's the implication. Even if Lazarus were in the cave and there was no sense of his death, he couldn't get out of the cave because he couldn't in any way move the stone by himself. On top of that, he's been there four days. He's now decaying, as Martha indicates. The effects of death are happening. The Jewish tradition said that once someone was dead longer than three days, there was no sense in which the Spirit would return to him. Maybe that's why Jesus Christ waited another two days after hearing Lazarus had been sick so that he would get there past that time so that there was absolutely no possibility, not only in any kind of way, but also no way in the traditions and suspicions and, and superstitions of the Jewish way that Lazarus' spirit could, in fact, come back. He's already been there four days. Tradition was over. The spirit wouldn't be coming back, at least in their minds, and he's already decaying. Now think about it in the spiritual way for a moment, spiritual terms. Because Lazarus' condition in the physical realm is the same spiritual condition of all mankind. This is every person ever created. We are entombed in sin, unable to escape, dead to Christ, separated spiritually from God, unable to help ourselves in any kind of way. We are there in the dark, groping around, hoping to find something. And yet we cannot help ourselves. Here in the physical realm, Jesus, having been deeply moved within, comes to the tomb. We get a description of what it's like. And in verse 39, Jesus says, remove the stone. I don't know if when you read this account, if you find that interesting. It seems rather significant that Jesus would use men to take the stone away. I mean, here's the creator of the universe. Here's the one who created the very rock that's laying against the cave. I ask myself, why, why would you say that? Why would you tell men to remove the stone? And I think there's really two reasons. One is this. Jesus Christ isn't in the business of doing stage magic. He's not in the business of doing tricks for some kind of public appeal, 
right? I mean, this is the creator of the universe. If he wanted to, he could have just suspended the stone above the tomb and spun it around a few times and let the people look at that and go, oh, really? That's no big deal. He could have done that. He didn't need help removing the stone. But that was not what he was about. Jesus didn't do things like that. He isn't a circus act. Only God can raise the dead. But I find it interesting, even in the spiritual realm, that while God can raise the dead, God only does what God will do. He doesn't do what he requires us to do. I don't think we can forget that. He's going to do the physical reality. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But Lazarus needed the way opened to walk out. Think about that spiritually when it comes to raising a dead soul. When God raises a dead soul, that's God's job. We don't do that. When God saves someone dead in their trespasses of sin, that's God's job. But God uses us as a means for bringing that life-giving message. God uses us as a means for opening the door. Matthew 28 tells us, right, go and make disciples. We're to go, we're to share the gospel with others, share the good news of God, and we must do that, and we must do it in the service of God, yet God is the one who must raise their dead soul. We must work to give the gospel, right? We must work to to reach out to other people that others might hear of Christ. And yet, I think far too often, I was thinking about this, far too often we're like Martha. We're like Martha. Look at what Martha did. Martha, the sister, in verse 39, he says, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased. I always wonder why John writes writes it that way. Why didn't she just say Martha, the sister of Lazarus? But he doesn't. I don't have an answer as to why. I'm just curious. Martha, the sister of the disease, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he's been dead for days. I think sometimes we're like that. In a physical sense, that's true. Lazarus has been in the grave four days. He's been dead four days. He's already in the process of decomposing. The stench would probably be pretty great, even though they would have put spices upon him and tried to keep that at bay for as long as they could. But in the mind of Martha, he's far too gone. He's unsavable. To see or, or even try to save now seems like an impossibility. He's far too gone. True in the physical sense. Yet spiritually, we do the same thing. When it comes to our own problems or when it comes to even sharing the gospel with others, I know my own heart at times has said, ah, you know, they're too far gone. Forget it. Can't be done. They'll never be able to get the gospel. I'll never be able to get across to them. They're too deep in sin to be savable. 
I think sometimes even with our own faith, doubt seems to emerge to the top. The doubt that God can do what He says He could do, the seriousness of the problem, whatever it is we're facing, just seems to be too much to handle. It's just too big, too great for God. Martha seems to be there. Martha's thoughts are on the problem. Lord, he's been dead. His stench is a problem. She knew the process of decomposition was accompanied by an odor. She wanted to remember her brother before he died. She didn't want to see this decomposing body. And I think Martha actually believed it was too late for Jesus to do anything. She said it before, had you been here before he died, maybe you could have done something. But now he's four days gone. It's too late for you to do anything. Her circumstance seems to be even past Christ's control. I love what Jesus says to her. Verse 40, did I not say to you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Don't miss, don't miss what he's saying. Martha, believing is seeing. Believing is seeing. You see, we say in the natural world, we say in the physical realm, seeing is believing, don't we? That's how we say it oftentimes. Seeing is believing. If I see it, I believe it. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. When it comes to him, believing is seeing. You notice what Jesus did not say to Martha. He did not say, if you believe, I'll do the miracle. He didn't say that. He didn't condition the miracle on Martha's faith. If you just believe enough then this will happen, Martha. If you believe enough, your brother will be raised from the dead. He didn't do any of that. He said, if she believed him, she would see the glory of God. You see that? If you believe, you will see the glory of God. There's a great distinction between those two Because the power of God on display through the raising of Lazarus would have happened whether Martha believed or not. Jesus said he was going to raise him from the dead. He already said he was going to do that. So it wasn't contingent on whether Martha believed or not. Jesus had already said he was going to do that. But for her to see the glory of God in the miracle... She had to have faith in Jesus Christ. She had to believe that He is the resurrection and the life, as verse 25 says. She'd been focusing and fighting the battle between faith and doubt. I want to believe, but but I doubt. She'd been focusing her thoughts on the dead rather than on the living, on what was temporal rather than on what was eternal, on the things of her life rather than on Christ. But Christ is saying, in effect, in this miracle, Martha, in this miracle, 
I don't want you to just see a dead person raised. I want you to see the Son of God glorified. I want you to know Him who is resurrection life. That's who I want you to know. And this is the whole point of any miracle. It's the whole point of anything God created. That we might see the absolute blazing center of the glory of God who is Jesus Christ the Lord. That we might see Christ. The purpose of God saving a soul that is bound for hell is not so that we look at that person and we see that person and we say, boy, what a great person they have become. I used to know them when they were a dead sinner. That's not the point. As wonderful as that is, but that is not the point of God saving a soul. The point is that when we see someone that God saves, we see Christ and we see His glory shining through them. That's the point. That's why Jesus said, I want you to see in this the glory of God and myself. I want you to see the glory of God. I want you to see me. I'm not nearly so concerned about what you think of Lazarus as I am about what you think of me. You see, Jesus is saying, I'm not, I'm not as nearly concerned about your circumstance changing in your physical life as I am with what you think of me. You see? Now think about your own life. Uh, Jesus, dealing with you, dealing with your own life, dealing with the things of your life, dealing with your own spiritual condition. I'm not so concerned that, that your life be so different and changed circumstantially as I am concerned with how you see me in and through it. go through life reflecting the attributes of God in the midst of life and all the problems and all the troubles. And we walk in obedience to the Creator in those things. What others see us as we walk through those circumstances of life is they see the glory of God on display through us. One writer said it this way, quote, Some people are like Martha. They go through life and only see the problems. They get ulcers, worries, gray hairs over various difficulties. And then when God answers their problem, all they see is the solution until they focus on their next problem and wait for another solution. When a Christian keeps his eyes on Jesus Christ, he sees more than the solution. He sees the glory of Christ. Every time the Lord solves a problem, a believer can praise Him for who He is and what He has done. And when we look at His glory, our lives become a manifestation of that glory. That's what happens. As I was reading that that from that author, I, I thought of First Corinthians chapter three or Second Corinthians chapter three, verse eighteen. Here's what it says. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, 
are changing into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Unquote. You see, when we look at Christ, when we, when we don't focus on the, the issues of this temporal life and we focus on Christ in those moments, we start to reflect the glory of Christ as we honor Christ and see His glory in it. What are we supposed to be focusing on in our Christian lives? We're to be focusing on the glory of the Lord. We are to trust Christ. And so, verses 41 and 42 says, And so, they remove the stone, and Jesus raises His eyes and says, Father, I thank You that You heard me. And I knew that you heard me always, but because of the people standing around, I said it, that they may believe that you did send me. See, here's the thing. Seeing the glory of God is always linked to faith. And Jesus Christ is our example of what our faith is to be like. Hebrews 12.2. Jesus is our example. We are to fix our eyes on Him, the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the author and He is the perfecter of our faith. What kind of faith was it that Jesus had? This week I asked that question of my secretary. I said, did Jesus have faith? Did he live by faith? The answer is yes. Jesus lived by faith. Not saving faith. He didn't need to be saved. He wasn't a sinner. But he lived by faith. Well, what kind of faith did Jesus have? Let me give us three thoughts on that. I found these. These are not mine. But I think they sum it up well. First... His faith was a personal faith. Oh, what do I mean by that? I, I mean that, that his faith was not and is not some kind of abstract concept that we cannot put our arms around. It isn't something out here in the ethereal world that we go, well, I, I'm not sure what that was. His faith had an object. He believed in something. The object of his faith was God the Father. Jesus Christ, God incarnate here on this earth, trusted fully his Father in a personal way. Because of that, he lived according to that trust. In fact, in 1 Peter it says he entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously, which is why he never reviled back, never spoke a wicked word to anybody. Because he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. He personally trusted his father. And because of that, he lived according to that trust. And I could ask us right now, is your faith like that? Is it personal? Do you trust the person of Christ? And do you then act upon that word? Christ had a personal faith, but he also had a perfect faith. Perfect faith. Or really, to put it another way, to say it another way, I'm 
giving it that perfect faith just to alliterate it, but it was a totally trusting faith. Not, not perfect in the sense of divine without sinfulness. Uh, obviously, it was like that. But what I mean is perfect in the sense that it was a totally trusting faith. And I think that's why Jesus thanked the Father before it ever happened. Father, I thank you that you heard me. Lazarus hasn't even walked out of the grave yet. And yet he's thanking God because God has heard him. God the Father has already heard him. He knew that the Father never failed to hear him. I knew that you heard me always, he says, verse 42. That's perfect trust. Total trust. I wonder sometimes, is that how we think? Is that our mindset before God the Father? Do we believe that God will supply all of our needs? And because we say we believe that, do we thank God ahead of time for providing all our needs, even though our needs haven't arrived yet? Do we believe that He does actually care for us? That's the question. Do we thank Him in advance for His personal care of us? Do we totally, like Christ, trust Him by living according to that faithful promise that He will take care of us? Is our faith totally trusting? So Christ's faith is personal. Christ's faith is perfect. And third, it's public. It's a public faith. I like this because Christ didn't hide His faith in a corner. He didn't hope that no one would notice that he was speaking to the Father. No, he wanted others to see his faith in his Father. I know you heard me, but because of the people standing around me, I said it. Our relationship is right where it needs to be. I trust you fully, and yet I'm going to say I trust you fully outwardly so people know that I'm trusting you fully because they need to trust you fully. public faith and again what is ours what is our faith public like that public or is it private that age-old question would you be found guilty of faith in Christ by the testimony of others who know you if you were brought up before a court would they be able to convict you that you are a Christian because your faith is so public Because faith always then leads to action. And this is what Christ does. Notice verse 43 and 44. And when he had these, said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus had prepared this group of onlookers for the display of his power. He went to the grave, said, remove the stone, publicly praised to the Father. They are waiting. Everyone is waiting with anxious anticipation after the tomb is opened. This is the crucial moment because if Lazarus does not come out of the grave, Jesus' credibility is completely gone. You want to set the stage for a complete failure. If it does not happen, this is it. 
Jesus Christ has set the stage to the greatest degree, even publicly saying, I and the Father are one. God, I know you're listening to me. I know this is about you and about me and the glory of you. I know it is. They must have wondered if Jesus commanded for death to give up its victim, would that be obeyed? Did he have the power to actually get Lazarus out of the tomb, reverse the effects of death upon a physical body, and at the sound of Christ's voice, death yields up its victim. Christ is shown to be exactly who he is, God in the flesh. He stands victorious over death, victorious over Satan, victorious over sin, There's a principle. There's a principle. Life always comes by the Word of God. Life always comes by the Word of God. That's what the Bible says, isn't it? Romans 10, verse 17, right? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of of Christ, the very moment the Word of God reaches the heart of a dead sinner, that's the moment that the dead soul is regenerated and made alive. And so, just as Lazarus was physically raised from the dead by the Word of Christ, Lazarus come forth. Some preachers of old have said if God didn't specifically say Lazarus' name, all the graves would have emptied. Lazarus come forth, and he came. So too in the spiritual realm, all of those who are spiritually dead are made alive when Jesus Christ says, come forth. The word of Christ reaches their heart. I love this. In the end, Jesus says to them, notice at the end, unbind him, let him go. Unbind him, let him go. Once again, here in this few short verses, verse 39, remove the stone, and here again at the end of verse 44, unbind him, let it go. The people are commanded to be involved. He commands the bystanders who are there to roll away the stone, and he commands the bystanders who are there, unwrap Lazarus. Physically, that happened. And yet we learn from all of this in one sense that not only God raises the dead, but he still uses us to do the things that we are equipped to do. That's how the Lord always operates. He does what he does, and he requires us to do what he's equipped us to do. It's our lifelong duty as Christians to go and tell others about Jesus Christ And it's our Christian responsibility to help others mature in Christ. All of us know Christ. All of us who know Christ, we are saved positionally. We are positionally right before God because we're enveloped in Jesus Christ. And yet we still deal with sin practically. In one sense, we still walk around with this vestige of grave clothes on. We come out of the grave alive in Christ, and yet we still have all this baggage. And we deal with the effects of it every day. 
Just like Lazarus coming out of the tomb, he's still got all the grave clothes on. He's alive, and yet he's got all this trappings of the dead life. So we come out spiritually. Each of us needs others to help us. Need to help us mature. Need to help us remove the old grave clothes. Get rid of those habits. That's what we see happen. And then John ends with a warning. I think it's a warning to all of us. Verse 45 and 46. Many, therefore, the Jews who had come to Mary and beheld what he had done believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. John always puts those little things in the narrative. Something massive happens. Jesus Christ is on display in a clear way, and yet there's this separation that seems to take place right after. You see it in John chapter 6. After he feeds all these people, they come to him the next morning, and and all he's left with, with, after making one small statement to them, is 12 guys. There's a separation, an inevitable division that Christ brings through His power. An inevitable uh, dividing line that happens. When you know Christ and when you share Christ, the world is going to be divided as to those who follow and those who do not. Christ always brings that demarcation. And here you see it. Once again, some Jews believe Others run off and tell the Pharisees what's taking place because they're not believing. So I'll just ask this question tonight as we close our time. How do you react to Christ? How do you react to Christ? Do you believe in Him? Or do you reject Him like the second group rejected Him? Are you one of the crowd that hangs around just to watch, to see the the circus act, at least in your mind? Or are you a true believer, a Christian, who knows you have faith, and yet you know your faith needs to be strengthened, and it's strengthened by seeing Christ display His power through what He's done? I guess that's why I titled this message, What is Your Reaction to a Miracle? What do you do with the miracles of Jesus Christ? Jesus said they're to shine His glory. What's your reaction to the miracle of resurrection that we see all around us when someone comes to know Jesus Christ? What is your reaction? Some people believed, some people rejected. I trust our reaction is to believe. Let's pray. Father, tonight we are thankful for this accounting of your miraculous power to raise the dead. We've seen you 
change the course of the wind. We've seen you edit the physical ailments of the body. We've seen you change the physical realm of nourishment. We've seen you bring true joy even in the issues of this life. And in the end, you did the greatest miracle of all. You raised the dead. Right before the very eyes of people watching you, seeing you, knowing, knowing the truth, and yet willful disbelief continually rejects. Lord, we, we have seen clearly that you are indeed the Son of God, that you are God in the flesh. We have seen and been commanded over and over again that we are to believe. We know that you divide. That the truth divides. That what you have shown us and who you are is the very issue that people struggle with. You are God in the flesh. Help us to not only say we believe that, but to live according to that belief because only you are the resurrection and life. Let us reflect that belief as we obey and walk in obedience to your word that others might see your glory reflected in us. The very character of you on display through our life and obedience and submission to you. Thank you for accomplishing all that you have in this gospel thus far. The greatest miracle is even yet to come. You rising from the dead to new life that we might have life in your name. We love you and we want to honor you. Help us do that by the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name.